I've said it before, I'll say it again. I've been in a lot of churches, and none of them sings like you. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John again this morning. 1 John, starting in chapter 2. And we'll read just the first two verses. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. As we continue through our look at John's letter, his first letter to his churches. John 1, 2, 1 to 2. Before we read that, let's pray together. Great God, we thank you for the blessed assurance that we have in Christ that when we sin, there is an atoning sacrifice for our sins and that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has made it. Impress this truth upon us, not that we might sin more, but that we might sin less and love you more because you have loved us. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Last week, John balanced for us borderline crushing conviction and inexplicable relief. He started with a passage that really, I think, arrested us in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we walk in the darkness, if we walk in unchecked sin, then we do not have the truth. We do not have fellowship with God. If we walk in darkness, if we believe ourselves walking in unchecked sin to have fellowship with God, then we are deceiving ourselves. And this message arrested us, at least it should have, and it, it should have forced us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Am I walking in darkness? And if so, am I lying to myself about my relationship with my Creator. But right away then, John follows up, as he does oftentimes in this letter, he follows up right away with, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. You see, back-to-back -back verses with conviction and then comfort, and, and John loves his church enough to deal with them honestly. If they are walking in the darkness, he wants them to see that they are walking in the darkness, and that once they see they are walking in the darkness, to come into the light. And if they are already walking in the light, he then he wants them to stay there. He wants to encourage them that it is worth it to walk in the light. John is writing to his churches, uh, a group of churches in Ephesus. He writes to these churches in a time when, when different kinds of, of false teachers are trying to pull the church this way or pull the church this way. Some would say it doesn't matter if you sin, and some would say you don't sin, don't worry about it, it's fine. On the one hand, they would blaspheme the Savior. On the other hand, they would reject a need for a Savior. And so John lovingly writes to his church saying, don't leave. Don't leave the faith. Don't leave the light. And he's going to teach them the truth. He writes to them in very strong language. And we're going to take these two verses here in four parts. 1a, 1b, 2a, 2b. 
And one of the one of the beautiful things about the scripture is the great variety that God uses inside the 66 inspired books of the Bible to teach us. Back a year ago or so when we were in Kings, we would read two or three pages of the stories of the Lord's history, the history of the Lord's people and what He had done. And we would learn the the truths of God that way. But then you come into things like letters and you see that it can just take two verses for us to, to grab hold of a truth too deep for us really to fully comprehend. So there's this this great diversity in the Scriptures. So we'll take just these two verses, and I trust that we will grab plenty of richness and plenty of worth out of these two verses to go home and chew on for quite some time. So we'll start here in just the first part of verse 1. John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. You know, always in chapter 1, John use the language of we. We have heard. We have looked at. We have seen with our eyes. We have touched. This we proclaim to you. We write to you. But now, things have changed. Before, he had always associated himself with the broader group of the apostles. He's not the only one who heard this message from Jesus. He's not the only one who saw Jesus. He's not the only one who touched Jesus. Lest you think that John is is some kind of rogue, as though he's gone off on his own. He says, no, I am with a group of other men who saw and heard and touched the same thing and preached the same message. But now as we come into verse 1, we has given way to I. He shifts from from this broader testimony now to a specific relationship. And he speaks to them as his children. He says, my dear children, I write this to you. John is their pastor. A pastor, perhaps something like a bishop. He's a pastor over all kinds of churches, a number of churches, each of which most likely had their own local leadership. And he writes to them as a pastor, but he also writes to them as some sort of a fatherly or grandfatherly figure. When John writes, he's an old man. He's an old man. He's long removed from his time in observing and hearing and seeing Jesus with his own eyes and listening with his own ears. But when he writes to them, he does not write as an angry, cranky old man. He's not a Scrooge. He writes as one full of love. He writes as a father or a grandfather who loves his sons or his grandsons. John is full of love. And as one who is full of love, John loves his churches enough to tell them the truth. It's always best for us to tell others the truth, and perhaps even ourselves, even though it's not always pleasant. I had a conversation just this last week with a friend of mine, uh, Pastor Brett Revlett, down from Crete PCA, and we were talking about any number of things, presbytery things, personal things, whatever, and then we got on the topic of his previous ministry. He, he came here to Crete from uh, a town or a city in Utah, just north of Salt Lake City, and if you know anything about Utah, you probably know that Utah is full of Mormons, and so he had a lot of interaction with Mormon people, and so one day, a couple of the Mormon missionaries come to his house, 
and they tried to convert him to Mormonism, of course. And so he has a conversation with the missionaries. And after they had gone, sometime later, the local Mormon bishop, that's uh, kind of like somebody, it's like a pastor of a local Mormon ward, which is like a church. He comes over to Brett's house because he knows that Pastor Brett is a pastor of the local evangelical church. And he goes, uh, Pastor Brett, I'm, I'm really sorry. I saw the missionaries come to your house and I, I, should have, I should have told them not to. I hope they didn't try to convert you. And he goes, of course they tried to convert me. I would be offended if they didn't. And shouldn't he have been offended? Shouldn't we be offended if, if someone would believe that they have the, the words of life and not share them with us? Uh, the Mormons believe that the only way to, to begin the eternal progression towards being gods ourselves of our own planets is really to be a part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's not true, but if it was true and they think it was true, of course we should want them to tell us the truth. Now we know that that, of course, is not the way, that, that's not our hope. Our hope is not to become gods ourselves. Our hope is to be with the God who made all things. There are no other gods. But if you love someone, you will desire to tell them the truth. I think there's a good lesson for us in there as well. But John loves his church enough to be willing to tell them the truth, both the hard truths and the comforting truths. And even in his old age, John is still involved in the nitty-gritty work of ministry. He's an old man, but he hasn't retired from the church. In his, in his old age, he's still engaged, he's still involved, he's still fighting for the truth, he's still serving his church. He hasn't gone off to the beaches of, of, some, of some city in the area to spend his days collecting seashells, but he's still here loving and serving and, and dedicating himself, devoting himself to the well-being of his churches. And he's sharing with them what he had heard from the Savior himself. And so he goes on then, and he says very plainly, I write this to you so that you will not sin. There are a few main errors that plague the church in very thinly veiled differences throughout all the different ages of the church. One of those errors is thinking that Jesus is less than God. Another error that is in mind here or is in view here in John's mind is the error of thinking that sin is not really that big of a deal. The kind of thought that says, well, Jesus is the Savior, and if there's a Savior, then it's not as big a deal if I sin. Or as we, read, as we read last week, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Well then, what's a little more unrighteousness if it will all be cleansed? John says, no, I do not write to give you an excuse for sin. I do not write to comfort you in your sin itself. I write for the opposite reason from that. I write so that you will not sin. And John gives them an encouragement not to sin. He gives them an encouragement not to sin because he believes that in giving this encouragement, they will indeed be encouraged and they will sin less. You, you go back to verse 10 from chapter 1, you see that John knows good and well that it is not possible for a Christian this side of glory, this side of the resurrection to live a perfect life. He says, if you claim to be without sin, you are a liar. <coughs> He knows that good and well. 
But he's not, he's not going to allow that to be an excuse. He's not, going to let, he's not going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good or the perfect be the enemy of the better. Don't walk in darkness. You may stumble into the darkness, but don't walk in the darkness. Some clarity here I think is helpful. I'm always trying to find greater clarity how to, how to describe this relationship between not walking in the darkness but recognizing that we stumble into the darkness. And I found a a helpful quote here from Stuart Smalley. He's a commentator, writes on this passage. says, John is not suggesting by this the possibility of a completely sinless existence. Rather, he is pleading for a renunciation of the disposition towards sinfulness. John is after the heart. He's after the will. He's after the soul. He's after the desires. He wants for his churches, he wants for these saints, these people of God, to want to do righteousness. And in wanting to do righteousness, actually to do it, and increasingly so. He wants them to identify themselves, not first as sinners, but first as saints. We might say to see themselves as saints who sin. He knows that we will stumble from time to time, sadly, into sin. But he does not want that to be the norm. So he writes to us that that we won't sin. The Apostle Paul shares a bit of his own experience in Philippians 3 that I think is helpful. I don't want to get sidetracked into a, a different sermon on Philippians 3, but I think the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 shows us a good example of what it means to be walking in the light while recognizing that we are not entirely sinless. And this is what he writes in Philippians 3, 4-14. to If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, if anybody has confidence in and of himself, it should be me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul, Paul wants to attain to the resurrection. He wants to attain to the resurrection perfection of the Lord Jesus. He wants to be able to say, I have already made it my own. I am already free from sin. But he can't say that. 
I am not already perfect. But what does he say? Forgetting what is behind, forgetting my sinful nature, and forgetting all that God has forgiven, I strain forward towards the goal. I press on towards the goal of being into being transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You see what Paul is saying. I'm not there yet, but by God's grace, I'm on my way. That's how we should be thinking. I'm not there, but I'm closer than when I started. And as I have walked in the light, so far as by God's grace, I have been able to walk in the light I am nearer to the image of Christ now than I was before. I think we should be very careful in how we think and how we communicate in these ways. We should be very careful that we don't say things like, I'm just a sinner. In Christ, I am not just a sinner. In Christ, I am a saint who sins. And there is an eternity of difference between being just a sinner and being a saint who sins. And we shouldn't say to the one who is apart from Christ, who is outside of Christ, I'm just like you. No, I'm not just like you. I was just like you. By nature, I am a sinner. But I am not like you. There is an eternity of difference between me and you because I belong to Christ and you do not. But you can become as I am in Christ. We should tell the truth about ourselves, not in some sort of false humility that says, I'm just a sinner. No, that's to blaspheme the work of God. It is God who sets us on the path to righteousness. It is God who allows us to walk in the light. And if we are walking in the light in Christ, then we should not say we're walking in the darkness. We're not. We're forgetting what is behind the road of darkness. And we are straining towards what is ahead the resurrection that we have in Christ. So John says, don't sin. And he says it to those who are already converted, to those who have already been born again in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to the second part of verse 1. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Perhaps you can put yourself in the position of John's readers. John says, I write this to you so you won't sin. And so you say, well, I don't want to sin. And I try not to sin. But what if I do? John comes right back, anticipating this question, following up the conviction with the comfort. And he says, if you sin, if you sin, if you stumble into that sin, do not despair. There is a Savior for that. You are not on your own. But every time you sin, the Lord Jesus Christ stands next to you to be an advocate for you. He stands next to you to plead your case with the Father. And that's what we see here. We see sort of a pleading of the case. This, this word advocate, uh, it's, it's from a Greek word that's at least somewhat known. It, it's the word paraclete. And the word paraclete means someone who comes alongside, who argues the case, who speaks for someone who isn't really able to speak entirely for themselves. And so he says that Jesus comes along in this, in this sort of legal sense and speaks as our lawyer on our behalf to the Father. I want us to keep that in mind then as we go into the first half of verse 2. And it says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So read all that together, the the second part of verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So he is an advocate. He is one who speaks on our behalf to the Father. And he is the righteous one, and he is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we want to ask ourselves the question we should be asking ourselves, which is, why can Jesus speak for us? And why should we find hope in the fact that Jesus speaks for us? What makes him a worthy advocate? You know, each time we sin, we, right, we rightly come before the bar of God's justice. Remember that God is just. He is good. And when we stand before that bar, we are expected to give some kind of an answer for ourselves. And I sure don't want any of you giving an answer for me before the courtroom of God. And I don't want you to expect me to do that. If I have to give an account for you, I'm just going to hand in the guilty plea and walk out the room. We need to know what is it that Christ as our advocate, why is this helpful? Why is He worthy? Why is it of any benefit to us that Christ advocates for us? John combines two reasons here. First, Jesus is the Christ, the righteous one. And second, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. First things first, notice how John refers to Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He combines both of the natures of Jesus into, into one name. Jesus, that is a human man, the Lord saves, with Christ, that is a divine office. Christ Messiah, He is Himself the Lord. And so as a man, He is able to advocate for us. As a man, He is able to stand in our shoes as one of us and speak on our behalf. It's like we read in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore... The children of God share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. He is one of us in order that he may advocate, that he may speak for us. But he is not like us in every way because he does not share our guilt. So he can rightly stand before the Father. When was it that Adam was, was rather swiftly booted out of the garden? It was after he had sinned. After he had sinned, he was no longer permitted in the presence of God immediately. But Jesus has no sin. Jesus has no reason to be booted out of the presence of God. Jesus doesn't come into the presence of God by grace. Jesus comes into the presence of God on his own merits. And as He stands before the Father, we do not stand next to someone who also doesn't belong there. We stand next to someone who does belong there. But not only that, but John refers to Him as the Christ. That is that He is the Messiah. He is Himself God. And as He stands before God, He stands before God as God. He speaks to the Father as one of us, but He also speaks to the Father as an equal. And He is able to bridge the great divide between man and God, sinner and the holy God in himself because he is righteous, he is a man, and he is God. But that's not all. He is the advocate, but on what grounds does he plead our case? Certainly Jesus is not some kind of uh, sly lawyer who specializes in getting uh, guilty people off uh, when they have no reason getting off. He doesn't use some kind of personal relationship with the judge to just 
get him to dismiss the case. That would be unjust, and Jesus is just. He is the righteous one. So on what grounds does he plead our case? Well, John explains more. He says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The King James Version, the English Standard Version, say that he is a propitiation for our sins, that he is a sacrifice that turns away the the charge, turns away the wrath, the punishment of God against his people, that he is a propitiation for their sins. And here, John builds off what we read last week in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. If, if verse 1 pictured a courtroom scene, verse 2 pictures a temple scene. And it pictures Jesus as a high priest. Perhaps we can picture him dressed in the garments of the high priest. And Jesus begins walking towards the holy place. He walks through the outer courts. He walks through the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, into the holy place. And then he walks into the holy of holies, the the place of God's immediate presence where the ark is under the wings of the cherubim. And he enters in there to make a sacrifice. But if you watch him go in as the high priest, you might say, he forgot something. He forgot the lamb. He forgot the sacrifice. But he didn't forget the sacrifice. Because he is both the priest and the sacrifice. He is the one who not only offers the sacrifice, but who offers himself as the sacrifice. And because he is man and God, he is able to offer himself for us because man sinned, man must die, but he offers an infinitely worthy sacrifice because he is God. And so, he sheds his own blood. The blood of the Lamb we may say, for our sins. At the cross, the cross, the perfect altar, a terrible altar, but the perfect altar. At the cross, Jesus, the great high priest, sacrifices himself. And as his blood, his perfect, beautiful, worthy blood drips down the cross, and runs down out of his hands. It drips down and it washes away all of our sin. Every last one. This is what qualifies him to stand next to us in God's courtroom and to advocate for us. Jesus is not some kind of schmooze. He doesn't come in and play buddy-buddy with the Father and then just kind of get us out the side door of the courtroom. But he comes in and he stands before God and he says, this one has sinned again. But Father, this sin again is another sin which I have forgiven, which has already been paid for and punished. We can let him go again, and again, and again. But what we have to realize in all of this is that this is not an antagonistic situation. Jesus does not come, we do not come to an angry judge 
who begrudges that we are there, who despises us and just kind of out of some mere obligation sends us away forgiven. But we come before a loving judge. You know, we have an advocate with the Father. We have one who speaks for us only because the Father gave him to do that for us. Remember, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. Or as we'll come to later in 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We stand forgiven because God has loved us to the extent where even while we were unlovely, he sent his Son that he might die for us to release us from every act of darkness which we have ever committed. This is not a hostile courtroom. It's a merciful one. At the end of it all, at the end of it all, when we are forgiven, it's a joyful scene. Judge, advocate, and the acquitted, all together full of joy that things are as they should be. And John finishes with just this one more note of comfort as we get into the second part of verse 2. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John wants to make clear that his church recognizes that this, that this forgiveness is, is not just for them. It's not just for his churches in Ephesus. It's not just for other churches that Paul might have planted. It's not just for other churches in Asia Minor or the Roman Empire. His forgiveness, this forgiveness, is for all the children of God, wherever they may be found and whenever they may be found, even to the ends of the earth. Even by God's grace to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your grace extends even to us. The very ends of the earth, two millennia later, still the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus, still it is enough. Still it permits him to advocate for us to stand for us and to forgive us. Father, we do not want to sin. We do not want to sin. We do not want to be hardened in our hearts. There are probably those who are hardened in their hearts among us. We pray that perhaps they might not take any comfort from this passage if they cannot get past the first part of verse 1 without saying, but I want to sin. But for those who have tender consciences, Lord, give us. Give us this great relief. It comes to us so plainly, but if we sin, we have an advocate, an atoning sacrifice, 
who comes alongside of us and brings us back to you once more. We thank you for the blood, the precious, perfect, beautiful blood of Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for enduring the cross, enduring the very pains of hell itself in those moments so that we can be forgiven and not endure the pains of hell forever. Lord Jesus, receive our thanks. We can spend all of eternity offering it and never offer enough of it. But for this moment, we give you what we have. And we give you our thanks. And then we thank you as well. You have given us the Holy Spirit who works in us to will and to do your good pleasure. That in him you have given us a blessed assurance indeed that you are ours. And so as we proceed through the rest of this Lord's Day and through the rest of this week, send us out with the great confidence that in Christ we are forgiven and that in Christ we belong forever to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll stand.